I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the show, continuing coverage of the events unfolding in the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, uh, what is happening in Gaza right now, the Hamas attack of October 7th. We'll be joined on this edition of the show by Scott Horton, longtime contributor to Antiwar.com host of The Scott Horton Show and the head honcho at the Libertarian Institute. Scott and I don't agree about everything. Obviously, we come from uh, different political perspectives, but he's been covering the Middle East and the wars of the Middle East for some time, and I do believe his commentary can be rather insightful. Uh, You may find him rough around the edges at times. He has a very bombastic approach to talking about these matters, but I hope that you'll find this conversation informative. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Scott Horton. Welcome to Parallax User. I should say welcome back. He's been on the show before. Scott Horton of the Libertarian Institute and the great Scott Horton Show. I've been listening to that show since my teens, and it's been a very valuable resource. Uh, Scott, how are you doing? I mean, it's things are going crazy right now, but how are you? I'm okay. Thank you very much for having me, man. Good to be back. Scott, could you uh, just give your initial take on what has transpired in the past week from you know, October 7th to the bombing of Gaza now. Yeah, well, it's a bunch of horrible killing, isn't it? Um, There was a big jailbreak out of the Gaza ghetto or concentration camp or whatever you call it, occupied territory under siege last Saturday morning by Hamas, the armed militia that holds almost a monopoly 
on power there under the siege, of course. Um, it's not a it's not a, a state or a sovereign government in any way. And uh, they broke out and they attacked a bunch of IDF military bases, and they also attacked a bunch of innocent Israeli civilians, unarmed noncombatants who they slaughtered by the hundreds and hundreds, men, women, and children. And they took over, I believe it was 24 villages. I couldn't believe the reading the Jerusalem Post, the extent of what they had taken there in the land adjacent to Gaza, which of course used to be Palestinian territory. Um, from their point of view, they were taking it back at least for a little while. But the primary uh, point for all of our purposes here, of course, is that they butchered a bunch of innocent people. And regardless of the propaganda about the beheaded babies, which the Israeli government is not standing behind that claim at all, they've refused to numerous times. There's no reason to believe that it's true. But regardless of that, it's a it's a, a red herring and a distraction because, in fact, they killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of civilians. I don't know the exact count of civilians versus IDF. But even then, just like in the war in Ukraine and in Russia, I feel extra bad for the soldiers, too, because they're all conscripts. So whether they even want to be in the army at all is, you know, just because somebody's a fighting age male doesn't mean it's okay to kill them. Speaking as a former fighting age male, you know, I want to live too. I don't think it's okay to just kill people. Um, and in this case, you know, the IDF, they have the draft in Israel. So for all I know, a lot of the people who were even in the IDF who were killed didn't really have a choice but to be there. Um, but anyway, so, you know, uh, something around right around a thousand Israelis were killed, something like that. And, and it's an absolute horrible war crime. And it was done for the purpose, I believe without, in fact, I have some evidence of this, but obviously not communication with these guys or anything, but the apparent purpose was to provoke exactly what we see happening in Gaza now to force Israel to bomb the crap out of the Gaza Strip and even possibly a full-scale land invasion. And why would they do that? Get thousands of their own people killed. It's already more than a thousand killed in Gaza. And again, I don't know the proportion exactly of civilians to combatants here or, you know, necessarily trust their claims of the proportion there, but it's still absolutely hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of innocent civilians who've been killed, including, of course, men, women, and children. And that then is meant to provoke a counter-reaction, the purpose of Hamas provoking Israel in such a horrible way into responding in such a horrible way is then to force every other sovereign on the planet, or at least in the region, to take a stand and to get in the fight, or at least to make it plain where they are in the fight. Whereas before, oh, everybody just wants to look at what's going on in the Donbass, and you just want to ignore us and think we'll go away, that kind of attitude. Now, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, he has to respond. What's he going to do? And what's he going to do in response to the air campaign? What's he going to do in response to a ground invasion, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing goes for Assad and his, you know, pro-Iranian Shiite government, which has, in, at least in the past, although Hamas actually sided with the revolution against uh, Assad during the Obama dirty war. So there might be a little bit of bad blood there. But, you know, opinion in the country, of course, is going to be on the side of the Palestinians. Now, in Iraq... As you know, George W. Bush 
put the Ayatollah Khamenei's best friends in power there. And it's all very radical Shiite militias who back up that national army and who are all very close to Hezbollah and very close to Iran. Right. Um, that was the main result of Iraq War II was to give Baghdad to Iran's allies. And then you have every single little El Presidente and potentate in the Gulf from Kuwait to UAE, Bahrain, Qatar and, and Saudi, of course, and Oman and, and even in Yemen. Everybody has to take a stand. Right. Everybody. This is going to harm the uh, any talks of normalization processes between Saudi Arabia, Thank Israel, et cetera. That's right. And in fact, Max Blumenthal on my show the other day had a quote. I need to follow up with him and get my footnote for this. But he had a quote with, from one of the Hamas guys talking about how they want to sabotage the Abraham Accords. So let's just stop for little brackets here and talk about the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords are where America helped Israel under um, Trump and into Biden, help Israel make peace deals with the Sunni Arab kingdoms. Right. Not all of them, but began to work these deals out and they were working hard on Saudi Arabia. OK, now the purpose of this really is all about selling out the Palestinians, because all of those Arab states who have always been horrible to the Palestinians, you'll hear Zion say, well, the king of Saudi Arabia doesn't care about them very much. Like you're only supposed to care about them as much as the king of Saudi Arabia tells you to or something is the moral standard there. Yes, the sovereigns of the region are monsters and they don't care about the Palestinians at all. But anyway, they always had the position that they won't normalize relations with Israel. It's not like they're at war or anything. These aren't really peace deals. They're normalization deals. But that they won't fully normalize relations with Israel until the Palestinians get a two-state solution, that is independence out from under Israeli occupation and the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. And by doing the Abraham Accords, that means actually you don't have to accommodate the Palestinians at all. After all, just as long as the Americans give us billions of dollars and weapons and whatever, then we'll go ahead and sell out the Palestinians. And so that was the Abraham Accords. So one of these Hamas leaders said that was one of their missions was to undermine the Abraham Accords, to force everybody to now you're going to sign a normalization deal with Israel right when they're in the middle of butchering the Palestinians this way. And so now every government in the region is at least in a much worse position for trying to justify that kind of a policy to their population. And we even saw Crown Prince Bonesaw from Saudi Arabia. The first thing he did was get on the phone to the Ayatollah or to the president of Iran. And they had a discussion about what are they going to do about Palestine? So that was the purpose of it, right? What they did was an absolute horrific atrocity, just like September 11th was an absolute horrific atrocity. It was meant to force the American people meant to drive us mad, meant to make us do something drastic. And then they would play off the counter reactions from that, which is, of course, the history of the last 20 years, as we've seen. I want I want you to delve into that a little bit more, because I know people that are listening to this that are only just getting interested in all of this history. Sure. Uh, and I think it's important that we draw those parallels between uh, what is happening now and 9-11, because let's be honest, bin Laden, we took the bait. That's right. OK, so listen, and just like what's happening now in terms of public opinion and everything, nobody really knows anything about the Middle East. There's not 
that many Jews and Arabs here. And most Jews that live here are European Jews. They don't really know about the Middle East either. And the experience that we have with it is like whatever Morning Joe says, we don't know. Americans don't know, right? And so you can kind of, well, George Bush said, they hate our freedom. For those of you who are too young, he really said, they hate our freedom. That's the explanation for these people coming after us. And now I know probably there are maybe some more 9-11 truth or oriented type people listening who think the whole thing was a put on. But I would posit to you that if it was a put on at all, it was possibly Saudi and America sort of turning a blind eye, possibly even financially, deliberately financially assisting the terrorists. But who? The terrorists. Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden's guys. And, you know, the more and more and more I learn about the history of these guys, you can see where there are factions of them fighting in Chechnya, factions of them fighting in Kosovo and, and even in Macedonia and things in 99 through 2000. But it's the same group, basically. These are bin Ladenite fighters. They're Arab and Chechen and, and other various Mujahideen. Almost all of them left over from the Afghan war. And then new recruits that came who were too late for, I mean, sorry, the 1980s Afghan war. The Ronald Reagan Rambo III war against the Soviet Union. Mujahideen holy war when the Mujahideen were the good guys still. Um, and then younger generations of fighters who came also to fight with them in Bosnia and Kosovo and Chechnya. And in fact, two of the pilot hijackers from Flight 77 had fought in Bosnia. Same for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who had helped to organize the attack against us. Now, again, if you want to oversimplify it, you could say, yeah, see, they're all CIA. But I think the uh, the really the explanation and it, this really just the more I learn about from as many wide and varied sources as I've been studying over all these years, it really just seems like there's a disagreement inside the Mujahideen. There are some people who really want to do like bin Laden and do these, you know, sneak attack terrorist attacks and and understand the vision of an internationalist type jihad and all this. And you have other guys who are like, what are you talking about, man? We just want to go to Chechnya and shoot Russians, right? And just go and, and you know what I mean? So you kind of have factions like that. So, but look, I think a big reason that a lot of Americans became 9-11 truthers is because the government immediately conflated Al-Qaeda with the Taliban. And if I just tell you, like in the most kind of um, straw man form, to look, yeah, a bunch of cavemen from Pashtunistan hijacked a bunch of our planes and kamikazed our two towers and our Pentagon because they hate freedom so much. Like you just, you know, I'm your enemy now, right? You know, that's stupid and, and dishonest. So what's really going on here, right? When the reality is the Taliban didn't do it. The Taliban were innocent. The Taliban are a bunch of barefoot hillbillies from Nowheresville. They don't even know how to get to North America. They've never heard of North America. They don't know nothing about this stuff. We were attacked by Al-Qaeda, and they were extremely sophisticated, highly educated men about the world from Saudi Arabia and from Egypt primarily. And they were there essentially like, as W. Bush correctly said, acting like a parasite, essentially uh, foisting themselves on the Taliban who were saddled with them. Mullah Omar said, bin Laden is like a chicken bone stuck in my throat. I can neither swallow him nor spit him out. Okay. So 
But George Bush lied about that because George Bush wanted to let bin Laden escape so he could scare your mama with him for another 10 years and get his bonus wars and the rest. But he wanted to do a regime change against the Taliban in Kabul instead. So he said the Taliban did it. The Taliban did it. And TV used Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Al-Qaeda interchangeably to the point where people thought we were attacked by these redneck hillbilly inbred uneducated barefoot goofballs from the town of bedrock right and like so america overall americans thought okay let's go kill all the afghans then since the afghans attacked us great and, and again this is exactly what bin laden wanted us to do that's right that's exactly right it's the land of jihad we're going to bring the americans to the land of jihad so wait i'll get to that second because i'm off on this tangent but but this is why so many people became truthers was the tangent I'm on now is because Bush and his government refused to play it straight with us from the very beginning about what had happened here and blamed it on these poor people. And so um, you have this collective guilt where the poor people of Afghanistan somehow were blamed for attacking us when they had absolutely nothing to do with it. Most of them had never heard of the new world before, in all honesty, had no idea even what Eurasia is, don't know anything at all. OK, um, and and uh, got caught up in that hundreds of thousands of them killed in a 20 year war, the most unjust war. It's just sick. I wrote a people want to look. I wrote a book called Fool's Errand about it. And it really is. Nobody cared as much about Afghanistan because like the big business all went down in Iraq and in the Levant, right in Mesopotamia and the Levant. Afghanistan's on the far side of Iran where it doesn't have as much of a direct effect on the rest of our story, right? The Afghan war immediate, I mean, pardon me, the Iraq war too, bleeds immediately to Libya, to Syria, right? It's a whole story. Afghanistan kind of gets the short shrift because it's kind of a side issue. So like the war in Somalia, it's been horrible this whole time, but it does it doesn't have reverberating effects around all the rest of the countries or not in that compelling of a narrative. So it always kind of gets left out. But anyway, so back to... For people who, even if you're a truther, put that aside for a minute and hear me out about, you know, there, there's so much that we know about Al-Qaeda's motivation for doing this. Again, even if you're a truther, forget all the stupid stuff. If you want to stick to the smart stuff, it's all about what did Saudi intelligence know and when did they know it and how come they kept giving, giving these guys money and stuff, right? It's not all this crazy stuff. So still, um, ask yourself, what was the point? You could say that plan A was for the American people to say, geez, after this, it's just not worth it to be an empire anymore if this is the cost of empire, right? But they knew that Americans weren't going to be that wise. And they knew that George W. Bush was the president of the United States. And they were going to do it anyway. But I'll urge people to look this up. It's an interview in Rolling Stone from 2010 with Osama bin Laden's son, Omar. And he's not a terrorist. One of the, one or two of his other sons did join up Al Qaeda, um, but Omar did not. And it, he's he meets up with Guy Lawson from Rolling Stone at a nightclub in Damascus. This is before Obama destroyed Syria, like one year before. And um, Omar bin Laden says, "I was in Afghanistan in the year 2000 with my dad." And when George Bush won the election, he says, my father was so happy. This is the kind of president he needs, one who he can enrage, one who will attack and break the bank. 
And so he saw he and then he compares Bush. He says, you know, in Clinton's time, Clinton shot his missiles and missed my father. But, you know, you guys have invaded and occupied Afghanistan and spent all these billions of dollars and you still don't have them. This is a year before they killed him. This is in 2010. He spent all these billions of dollars and you still don't have them. He says before America was smart, not like the bull that runs after the red scarf. Okay, so this guy has no like special access to sophisticated pro jihadist propaganda. He's just telling you a story about the last time he saw his father and his father was happy that George Bush pretend cowboy, pretend tough guy, fake macho who I could be arm wrestling. Right. But likes to pretend that he's a tough guy. This guy who has Mark written on his forehead, this quote, this is the kind of president he needs, one who will attack. See, so he's trying to provoke America. And then he says, again, Omar bin Laden, exact words, he will do to the Americans what he did to the Russians. Well, now think about it, especially Republicans listening. Well, hell, Democrats too. Republicans and Democrats take credit for Ronald Reagan and before him, Jimmy Carter's decision to back the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet Union in the Afghan war of the 1980s. Again, it's Rambo three. If you want to go look, it was the most publicly known covert op at the time. And they all take credit. You can find on YouTube, Hillary Clinton explaining you're dang right. Our support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, in the eighties helped destroy the Soviet Union. And they all pat themselves on the back. Ask a Republican who destroyed the Soviet Union and ended the cold war. And they'll tell you Ronald Reagan did that's who and you tell them oh yeah how did he do it and they'll go because he spent a bunch of money on nuclear weapons that the Russians couldn't match and he backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan who bogged the Soviet Red Army down and blew their legs off and sent them home in coffins and killed them and and helped that was one of the final straws that broke the back of the Soviet Union and man that's true that war did help undermine support for the Soviet regime in Moscow. It did enrage the mothers of all these dead GIs who are getting blown up for nothing to dominate the posh tunes. Are you kidding me? Americans are dumb enough to put up with that for 20 years. The Russians had had enough after 10 and they were pissed and it, it did help destroy the Soviet Union. But now look at it from the point of view, not of Hillary Clinton or Ronald Reagan or their partisans, but now look at it from the point of view of Al Qaeda. They did it. Right. The Mujahideen, they did. It wasn't the CIA and Ronald Reagan. It was their belief in Allah and their trusty AK-47s and their faith in each other to die heroically in battle, killing who? The atheist, godless communists, the worst sinners of all, whose dictatorship is founded on a rejection of God. You know, at least the Americans are people of the book. The Soviet Union is straight from Satan. And so they took credit. And guess what? They learned the same lesson that the Americans learned. That's a funny thing to do to your enemy. Trick them into invading Afghanistan. Give them their own Vietnam again and let them break. That was what the Americans said about luring the Soviets in and bogging the Soviets down in the 80s. We're giving and then the they did it with us. their Vietnam. Now we're doing it to us, doing it while well, we just finished doing it to ourselves for 20 years. But that was the purpose of the war. Now 
That means then, just like I didn't even have to write my second book. I could have just left it at fool's errand because if the Afghan war is completely debunked, then what the hell does that say about Iraq War II and Libya and Syria and Yemen and the rest? If we didn't have to do Afghanistan, the whole point of the war was to trick us into taking advantage and and blowing our whole wad in Afghanistan, then that means that Iraq and Libya and Syria and the rest are just doubling and tripling that same self-inflicted wound. So you believe the same tactic of pulling in, uh, you know, the, the way that Al-Qaeda pulled the U.S. into Afghanistan is what Hamas wants now from Israel. They want to pull Israel into Gaza. That's right. And it may not be an exact parallel in the sense that the purpose of, of bringing America into Afghanistan was to break the empire, to force the United States bankrupt, humiliated, defeated, to withdraw from the entire old world, withdraw entirely from the Middle East, give up the empire so that then they can attempt their local revolutions there. Now, Hamas's goals are different, right? But the point still being you're slaughtering civilians in such large numbers because they're trying to get you to step out of your brain and just be emotional and hateful and react because then they want to play on Israel and America and everyone else's reaction against them and say, rightfully, look at what they're doing to us, which, of course, everybody knows. Yeah, well, Hamas brought it on for the poor people of Gaza. But still, look at what Israel is doing to Gaza. They're just killing so many people, wiping entire families out. It's the same thing that Hamas just did, right? So one thing I wanted to talk about with you, I know that you and, and some other people at the Libertarian Institute have talked about this issue of blowback. And I've, I'm feeling shades of blowback on this one. I mean, we're seeing reports from the Times of Israel and Haaretz about Netanyahu propping up uh, Hamas. And also, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, someone like Pat Buchanan, who, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a lefty guy. I'm not a, I'm not a Buchananite. But when Buchanan said years ago uh, after the, the bombing of Gaza, these kids in Gaza that are being bombed, they're going to join Hamas one day. I mean, I may not agree with Buchanan politically uh, on, you know, most things, but he was kind of uh, prophetic about that. Yeah, look, I think people might not realize how great Pat Buchanan is on so many things, and especially on foreign policy. Since the end of the Cold War, he has been a great isolationist on foreign interventionism. Um, and he is, you know, a paleoconservative right winger. Um, he's for... I don't know if like complete autarky, but he's, you know, much more of a, a conservative populist and nationalist than me. Um, however, he's just a brilliant genius. If you read a republic, not an empire, or read his history of World War II, Churchill, Hitler, and the unnecessary war, uh, and some of this, I mean, he's just absolutely a, a brilliant guy. And he's a wonderful man, too. I know him. He's a friend of mine. Um, and I mean, or a good acquaintance anyway. I don't want to like exaggerate, but um, he's a very sweet man, a very decent but, man, a good man. And, and he cared. Look, well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I was more interested in the point he was making. Sure. But I, I like yeah. defending Pat because look, when I was a kid, I didn't know the difference between Pat Buchanan and Pat Robertson. Okay. I thought, yeah, right wing Christian Reaganite, you know, whatever. I wasn't really a left winger, but I was never a right winger. 
what he was saying was that, listen, we have the solution on the table, which is a two-state solution, but Israel's refusing to implement it. They're refusing to give these people independence. And what that means eventually is it's going to heat back up again. The issue's not solved. You know, look, let me let me assume for a minute that people maybe don't even know anything about this at all for a second, or like maybe only what they heard from TV. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings. You know, if I say the Israelis, the Palestinians, it sounds like I'm talking about the people of two different countries because everybody has a country, right? Right. Well, except the Palestinians, except right? The that's Palestinians. what you're going to get to. Yeah. That's right. So that's the thing of it is if you just say Israel did this, the Palestinians did that, or the Israelis did this and the Palestinians did that. It sounds like you're talking about, well, the Americans did this and the Mexicans did that. In other words, you're referring to the sovereign national governments in DC and in Mexico city, right? But no, uh-uh, that's not what we're talking about. The Palestinians don't have a country. They live the in the Gaza Strip is basically a open air prison. Um, and, and it's one of the most surveilled areas in the world. High unemployment, you know, I, it's it's terrible. As Pat says in that in that conversation, he called it a concentration camp, and this was on MSNBC. And the host says, "Oh." You just pushed my button, man. That word refers to the Holocaust, you know? And Pat says, no. Now, those are death camps, okay? And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what the British did in India and in Myanmar or whatever he says, in Burma or something. What the Spanish did in Cuba, which I don't even know that history, right? Pat knows everything. What the Spanish did in Cuba. You abduct all these people, and you concentrate them all together. Who are the people of the Gaza Strip? Most of them are the refugees from the other side of the wall. That's not where they're from. They're from what we now call Israel. And it was their parents and their grandparents who got run off of their land. They're living essentially the whole place is one big refugee camp. And so, you know, just on the basic level, we're not talking about a fight across the Rio Grande between sovereigns. We're talking about a fight between Uncle Sam and the reservation out in Arizona. Okay? So if I tell you, hey, man, shit went crazy out in Arizona. The Indians broke out of their reservation and massacred a bunch of Anglos in town and all of this stuff. Well, we're all very upset. And the men who did the murders... They're responsible for their murders that they did, cutting scalps off of innocent men, women, and children. Are you kidding me? However, you and me and everybody listening understands that the relative power between Uncle Sam and the Navajo on the res is point hundred zeros and then a one compared to the most powerful government that ever existed in the world. And we know that whatever's going on that's got them so angry that they would do something like that, our government has it in their power to resolve this through diplomacy, right? We don't have to invade the res and kill everybody. Our government must have done something to drive them that mad that they'd go and do something like that. And so we understand, not that it's forgivable or even understandable, Right. But we understand the difference in the power dynamic 
that we're not talking about a fight even between, I don't know, Iraq and Kuwait or America and Mexico, where we're so much more powerful than them. But we're talking about Uncle Sam versus the tribes on the res. That's who the Palestinians are. And you know, my friend said to me earlier today, he said, wait, if we all regret what we did to the Indians, we, the American Anglos and others who settled this land, if everyone regrets the history of what happened to the American Indians, then how come nobody cares when we're doing it? We're helping the Israelis do it to the Palestinians right now. And I said, you know why? Because they don't know. Because Ben Shapiro tells them that Palestine is a sovereign nation that just attacked Israel or he implies it. What would we do if the Mexicans were firing rockets over our border? Well, we'd bomb Mexico City is what we do. But it's different if you said, what would we do if some Mexicans who had broken out of their Indian reservation were shooting some rockets at us over? Well, you don't go bomb Mexico City for that, do you? Anyway, you understand what I'm saying? That people need a good goddamn analogy here because they're stuck in this in this confusing thing where maybe more than half the time, it sounds like Palestine is the country next door. But then why do we still need a two-state solution then? Because it's not. It's conquered territory under the complete control of the Israelis. Oh, and I'm sorry, because you asked me about support for Hamas. So go ahead and ask me about support for Hamas. Well, I, I, I just want to reiterate the point before I get to the support for Hamas bit. But what I wanted to ask you about was, uh, do you think people are missing the fact that when you have these previous bombing campaigns uh, and attacks by Israel on Gaza, I mean, that inevitably is going to radicalize. I mean, this is a population of a lot of young people. I think half the population right. is around 18. Of course, a lot of them are going to be radicalized and say, well, you know, Israel's bombing me. Hamas is here. Maybe I'll join Hamas. You know, it's the bombings that help further push people Absolutely. into working with Hamas. Of course. Listen, there's this great documentary about the war on terrorism. You may have seen it. It's called The Power of Nightmares by Adam Kurtz. Right. And he talks about in that movie, everybody should go watch this. He talks about how Al Qaeda and the neoconservatives need each other. Nobody cares what Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz think until somebody knocks the towers down, somebody hits the Pentagon. And then nobody has any answers because nobody knows what the hell, because they're all a bunch of idiot, numb skull, meathead government employees. They don't know anything. But guess who knows what to do? Richard Pearl. I know what to do. We've got to go to Baghdad. That's going to solve this problem. And he's got a whole group of people around him. And while everyone is upset, they're willing to listen to this guy who says, oh, we're going to get him all right. And here's how we're going to do it. And at the same time, what does Osama bin Laden do? He points at the American Hawks and he goes, look at the way that they bomb us. Look at the way that they kill us and look at the way that they talk about how they're going to keep doing it forever, too. And look at how dangerous they are. And so you have the radical street preacher talking about apocalypse and a bunch of crazy stuff. That's not true and is not impressive on the average Tuesday starts to make a lot of sense when the Americans and the Israelis, in other words, the Christians and the Jews are carpet bombing Middle Eastern Muslim states and and overthrowing their governments and and backing their infidel kings flying around with prostitutes and their solid gold airplanes and all of this crap. Right. Um, 
And so, um, uh, geez, I lost my train of thought. Um, well, I, I was going to say we could segue into, uh, I mean, obviously the, the bombings and, and whatnot create more, uh, people oh, yeah, that are the willing power to be supportive. The, trans, the, the transmission belt, right. So the right. more violent our side is, the more they get to justify their violence and the more violence we are, uh, yeah, and strike that and reverse it. So that's the whole thing is, um, uh, creating a crisis in order to create a need for themselves. It's really no different. Hamas then is no different than a Colorado fire department out there starting a wildfire so that they can put it out. That's happened numerous times, right? It's like, tell the people why they need us. Well, why do we need you? Well, because look at the enemy that's out to get you. So then with regards to uh, the reporting that's been happening with regards to Netanyahu propping up Hamas over the yes, years, uh, what do you know about that? Can you uh, uh, explain that to my listeners? Absolutely. All right. Well, first of all, keep your eyeballs on the Institute and antiwar.com because Connor and I are working on a piece about this right now that we should have out, I guess, early next week where we're going to assemble all of these footnotes for you. Um, but look, famously, and everybody get your uh, browser window open get some tabs open or a pen to jot something down. We got Andrew Higgins in the wall street journal who wrote how Israel, whatever the it's how Israel helped the rise of Hamas or something very close to that. Okay. But just if you search Andrew Higgins, wall street journal, Hamas, it'll come right up. Same thing for if you search Richard sale and that's like a financial sale, not a sailboat, uh, Richard sale at UPI. Richard Sale, UPI, Hamas. And those are your first two. And those both go back 20 years to the Bush government uh, years and, and the dawn of the terror war and explaining the deep history of how Israel helped promote the rise of Hamas in the first place. Uh, they didn't exactly create it, but my man, they pretty god dang much created it to the degree where Richard Sale quotes Israeli intelligence officers saying, it's my regret that we created Hamas, right? So, like, even was this though, to undermine was this to undermine Fatah, the PLO? That's right. That's right. It's to it's to divide and conquer the Palestinians to prevent a two state solution. See, here's the thing: Israel doesn't want peace. Israel wants that land, okay? Especially the West Bank. They call it Judea and Sumeria. Never since. 1967, they've been transferring their population in there. But ever since 1979, with the Camp David Accord, and then especially since 1993 with Oslo, they had promised to give up the West Bank, to get the settlers out, to let the Palestinians finally have an independent state on the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. And then they can, you know, hopefully, maybe in the eyes of, say, for example, some of the old Labor Party leaders live in peace as neighbors together. OK, but the radical right in Israel, which is dominant and that's they're not all religious. Some of them are secular right wing nationalists who are just as hell bent on seizing that territory as the religious kooks. But this is their mandate. They see many of them. Uh, secular or religious, to eventually, one way or the other, remove that population of millions of people from the West Bank and 
keep the whole thing for themselves. And in the meantime, they can hem them in in these little Bantu stands and seize control of more and more and more of that territory. Okay, but here's the problem, especially after they murdered. Well, I don't know for sure, but seemingly the Israelis assassinated Yasser Arafat. But then he was replaced by a guy who, on one hand, is more compliant for the Israelis and easy to get along with. Abu Mazen is his name or Abu Abbas. And he's much easier to get along with the head of Fatah, the PA, Palestinian Authority, uh, PLO. Arafat's old group, right? These guys. But that's a double-edged sword. On one hand, he's easy to push around and he does what he's told and whatever, right? On the other hand, he cuts a pretty reasonable figure. And it makes sense that the Americans and the Europeans would pressure the Israelis to make a deal with Abbas. And this nonsense, Colin Powell tried to get George W. Bush to force this issue after September 11th, really, it's in the book. And Ariel Sharon and his men won. The Likud guys won over Colin Powell, the Secretary of State. Um, and then the strategy is, and people, if you go to at Scott Horton show on Twitter, you can, if you'll probably have to troll through me denouncing some people and fighting and whatever. But if you look through, you'll find, I have what's called the Israeli regime likes it this way starter pack. And it's a long thread that has all of these sources, beginning with the Wall Street Journal and UPI piece. But then I get more into recent times and I've been collecting these quotes like matchbook, uh, matchbox cars, you know. And so we have literally Benjamin Netanyahu himself at a cabinet meeting to his cabinet when they're like challenging him or don't understand. And he's saying, listen, if you want to prevent a Palestinian state, a two-state solution, we have to support Hamas and Gaza, right? Then his, um, and he goes on, he says, they'll never make a deal, but we control the height of the flame. Uh-huh. And then- I mean, that's this is blowback 101, what we're getting into absolutely. right here. That's right. Then Bezrael Smotrich, who is- Right now, the finance minister, okay, major member of the coalition government, of the cabinet there. He's the head of the religious Zionist party. And people can find this quote. It's Again, it's on my Twitter feed, but you should be able to find it too. It's, it's actually kind of a unique quote if you put it in quotes, the way the translation comes out from Hebrew. He says, in this game of the delegitimization, Hamas is an asset. And the PA is a liability. And he repeats himself over and over and he makes himself so, so, so clear. Why is Hamas an asset, according to this right-wing extremist religious nut member of Netanyahu's government? He says, because they're terrorists and everybody hates them. They can't go to the United Nations. They can't go to the International Criminal Court. They can't lodge a complaint against us in any international type system. They have no legitimacy. And so as long as we keep them in there, then the pressure on us to deal with Abbas, who's supposed to be the leader of both, 
is null and void and canceled. And so we don't have to make peace with a boss as long as a boss is saddled with Hamas around his neck. And they just say it over and over and over again in the plainest language. Why are we doing it? Because see what happens is they get accused or, or not necessarily accused, but like challenged. Wait, why are we supporting Hamas? And then they go, well, we're supporting Hamas because it helps us not have to deal over the West Bank. And it's right. So they say it like that, the quiet part out loud when they're being challenged. Real quick, because I think this is important for people to understand, people that don't understand this region or this conflict. The West Bank is not controlled by Hamas. The West Bank is currently uh, experiencing more spikes in settler violence. Uh, the West Bank is being punished for this in a way. Uh, could you speak to the issue with the West Bank? Sure. Well, if, you know, there are some who say like Gaza is a maximum security prison and the West Bank is a minimum security prison. So first and foremost, what you need to understand is the Israelis are colonizing it and they have what are essentially racial colonies or, well, ethno-religious, whatever, colonies. A lot of the Jews are from the Middle East, too. Um, but whatever. Uh, you have these Jewish colonies, settlements, they call them, quite illegal in direct violation i believe it's the fourth geneva convention that that forbids this um that uh and they are essentially cutting it up into little bitty pieces so that it cannot be a contiguous state and then yes hamas rules the gaza strip but again relatively nice in fact abu abbas is a bit of a nut too he was saying some crazy stuff just a few weeks ago i forgot exactly what it was but he is not exactly like the most reasonable man but whatever he he cuts a figure of a much more reasonable guy than the hamas guys for sure and so um the palestinian authority they have what they did under the clinton years they carved the West Bank up into what they call areas A, B, and C. So area A's, area A includes, um, I think, Janine and Ramallah and a couple of other cities where the Palestinian Authority, because again, it's not a country, it's not a sovereign state. The Palestinian Authority is really like a cross between Arafat's PLO and George W. Bush's State Department that went and built it for them. And his his general, General Dayton, trained the Palestinian Authority's internal police forces. OK, but the way to understand this, honestly, is they're the trustees, just like in Gaza, really, with Hamas. They're trustees in an Israeli prison. OK, they're not in charge. They're nothing like a sovereign state, but they have somewhat sovereign powers over these few cities. Then you have what's called mixed control in the B areas. And then if you look at the map, area C is most of the whole place. And they claim that they own that for security control reasons, but that's fully under the control of the Israeli Jews. And I got to tell you, man, you got to look this up if you don't know it. I'm sure you probably know this, but if your audience isn't familiar, it's quite easy to find on YouTube. It's leaked secretly recorded video of Benjamin Netanyahu from the year 2001. And what it is, is he is in the living room of some settlers. And I think what happens, if I remember it right, somebody tells the little kid, hey, kid, turn off the video camera. And he goes over there and he tries to, but he doesn't. And the video camera keeps running. 
and Netanyahu keeps talking and it's all in Hebrew, of course, but you can, it was, le it, it was, it was published by Israeli Jewish media, not by the Palestinians or anything like that. They are the ones who put the subtitles on it. So it's totally legit and not in dispute. And what he talks about is how he screwed Bill Clinton. And how, yeah, what I did was I told Bill Clinton that, oh, yeah, area this, area that. But ha ha, area C is the super majority of the whole West Bank. And he didn't figure that out until too late, sucker. And then they say, geez, BB, aren't you afraid what the international community will think if we just keep colonizing everything and we don't get, you know, whatever? They're challenging him. And he says, America is a thing that can be moved very easily. He says, I swear to God, this is the quote. I don't know the translation personally, but it's been translated numerous times by Hebrew speakers. He says, 80% of them support us. It's absurd. He's mocking the United States of America for being a bunch of idiots and letting him run completely roughshod Letting him look our president right in the eye and say, you got it, Bill. We got a deal. Shake hands. Here's what we're going to do. And then he's lying. And then he laughs about it. And that and he's not just laughing at Bill, who's scum anyway, but he's laughing at the United States of America, his useful idiots. And everybody go watch it. It's his own words. Candid camera, bro. You can't make it up. There's just two more things I want to cover with you. I, I know we're seeing the deluge of right-wing voices now, like Ron DeSantis and whatnot, and I'm, I'm sure people that were saying, oh, I'm a good principled anti-interventionist, now proving that they're not anti-interventionists. Uh, and one of the claims I keep seeing these people push is, oh, Gaza is not a prison, uh, and you know it's all the fault of Hamas, the suffering of the Palestinians. Uh, they don't build the infrastructure Maybe you could talk a little bit about the role that Israel has played in the conditions of Gaza even before all of this happened. Sure. And look, I'm perfectly happy to stipulate, and this is no disclaimer, it's just true, that Hamas are scum. Whoever said, I don't know anybody, I, I don't know, I guess I've seen on YouTube some kook at some college say something nice about Hamas. I never, I've never heard or seen a person in real life say a nice thing about Hamas, right? They're the scum of the earth. They're murderers. Somebody on Twitter was going, hey, they pull up the water pipes and make rockets out of them. Yeah, well, maybe America should give them an arms package. Um, but, you know, that's sure they do that. And and sure, they care um, not nearly as much about the innocent civilians of Palestine as the innocent civilians of Palestine wish they did. You know, they're they're an armed group in control and armed groups in control are virtually always evil. See your Murray Rothbard. OK, anatomy of the state. Who is the state? They're the group of thugs who took over and no one else was able to dislodge, period. That's who the state is. These guys are trying to be one. So fine. I don't mind stipulating that. They're mass murderers and they suck at controlling the infrastructure. But here's what people may not understand. It is a prison. It's under complete and total siege. They have no airport, no seaport, no travel. The only trucks that get in and out of there are through Israeli controlled checkpoints. 
The people aren't allowed to leave. They don't have, again, they don't have a country. So they don't have passports. They can't go to Europe. They can't go to America. They can't do anything. Little girl wins a scholarship to go and study math at college in America or young woman, I mean. Nope, sorry, you're a prisoner. And then if they are let out, now you're not let back in. I mean, the whole thing is nuts, man, the way they do it. Um, and so look, 2005, Ariel Sharon pulls the last Israeli Jewish settlers out of the Gaza Strip. Now, Gaza is not nearly as important to the Israelis as the West Bank in terms of like their determination to seize Judea and Sumeria, as they call it. That's not as important in Gaza. Um, so what, what Sharon does is he pulls the settlers out. And my friend Eric Garris, the ruler of antiwar.com, he said then to me, he goes, oh, no, this is terrible because they were serving as de facto human shields protecting the people of Gaza. Now that there are no more Jews in Gaza, no more Israelis in Gaza, the Israeli government is going to be so horrible and cruel to these people. And then, so here's what happened. People go, oh yeah, no, we gave them their, we gave them their independence and then they went to war against us. Oh, come on, man. They didn't give them their independence. They withdrew the settlers, but they still had total control over the place. Again, this is an Indian reservation. So I pulled my federal troops out of the Indian reservation. Yeah, well, you still surround the thing. And so does the state police and everybody else, right? Um, so then- in 2006, Condoleezza Rice and George Bush forced the Palestinians to hold elections. They said, we want a two-state solution. Remember this? The roadmap to peace. Of course, we want a two-state solution. But by golly, that Yasser Arafat, he hasn't been freely and fairly elected by the people of Palestine. And so they have to hold a free and fair election. And only then would we insist that our friends, the Israelis, would ever have to deal with anyone else. So then they held a free and fair election. But guess what? Hamas won. And they won in part because, as Max Blumenthal said on my show the other day, for example, this one huge town in on the West Bank all voted for Hamas. Why? Because the Israelis had just surrounded their entire town with a 30-foot-tall concrete wall, and the Palestinian Authority hadn't been able to do a damn thing about it. So they voted for the bad guys, for the, for the radicals. Okay? Then the other thing was that, and I remember this from the time someone asked me for the footnote, and I forgot I need to go hunt this down. In fact, the last time I tried to find this, I couldn't find it. But I'm going to find it again, because I know it's true, because I remember from the time. We talked about it, I bet we covered it on the show. Israel withheld all the tax revenue from Fatah, from the PLA. So they control all the taxes, all the, all the uh, you know, tariffs of, of goods coming in and out of the West Bank. Israel collects all that money. And if they don't turn it over to the PA, then the PA can't pass it out and buy their votes, or for that matter, even provide their basic services, right? Garbage and, and whatever. They can't do their basic job. So the Israelis, and I don't know if this was deliberate. I'm not accusing them of doing this deliberately because I don't have the words of anyone admitting that or anyone with serious credibility making that accusation, right? Like, I don't know, an Israeli general accused them of doing it deliberately or something like that. I don't know that. But it kind of looked like they, what they did was they de facto rigged that election for Hamas. Then Hamas won, but just barely. And so they had to form a coalition government. This is again, 2006. 
But then the next year, America, Israel, and Egypt supported Fatah in an attempted coup against Hamas in Gaza. They gave them a bunch of, we bunch of weapons. Hamas kicked their ass and took all their guns and chased them out. And people can read this, jot this down, or dump it in your uh, search engine there. The Gaza Bombshell by David Rose. And yes, I admit it's in Vanity Fair, but whatever, dude. They publish journalism sometimes, and this was a long time ago. And so, yeah, it's a good piece. It's a solid piece. And it goes to show that, again, on the theme of blowback here, this is all they're doing, right? It was their failed coup that led to Hamas having the full control in the Gaza Strip. But then again, as I said, the Israelis have said over and over and over again, they like it this way. And I mean, again, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Treasury Minister, uh, Smezel, whatever the hell, Bozo, whatever. Uh, that's a little Smotrich. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, uh, Smotrich. Um, and um, not only that, generals, and and I have, again, the, there's a thread called the Israel, the Israeli regime likes it this way starter pack is the title of the first tweet there on, on my uh, Twitter at Scott Horton show right now. And people can see, cause there's a great article also that I poached from Jim Loeb's blog from an Israeli writer from the 972 mag from 2018, where he has four or five quotes of high level Israeli officials also describing this policy in specific in detail. We prefer to support Hamas essentially because they are a great little enemy to have that we can keep under control and yet we can always point at and demonize and say, say it with me now, everyone, you know the cliche, we have no partner for peace, right? And that's because they made it way that way deliberately. Scott, I know you have to get going. Last thing I want to ask you about, um, you know, I, I always see people saying, oh, this is just a conflict, a, a religious conflict between Jews and Muslims. It's it's a fight over religion. To me, I, I don't think that's what this is. This You're is right. a, an this issue is... over land. Talk about right. that. Okay, well, it's half a religious war on, on the Israeli side, and even then only half, so maybe a quarter of a religious war. Um, you know, Israel was founded by mostly secular, uh, you know, lefty types. But look... When I was a kid, I remember in high school telling my high school history teacher, ah, Palestine, I don't want to know about that. The whole Israel-Palestine thing. God gave us this land. No, God gave us this land. No, God gave us this land. That's me quoting me, thinking I'm quoting them when I was a kid, making excuses for why essentially the conflict is so stupid that what's the point of even learning a detail about it when the details don't matter? It all boils down to a bunch of people and their invisible friend gave them a magical land grant. And obviously you can't solve an argument like that that comes down to a matter of faith, right? But here's the thing, that's stupid and wrong. It's just not true. Here's what's true. The Palestinians, they got plain old property rights. John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, you mix your labor with the land, it belongs to you, natural rights. It's the Israeli Jews who come from Russia and Poland and Germany and New York who have to say, oh, no, no, my magical religious beliefs give me a supernatural right 
to the property that you already have a natural right to. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I do think there are Jewish people that do have a, a direct connection to the land, but I don't I don't think you're denying that either. Well, no, it depends on the situation. Even then, there are real problems, though, because and I, I really encourage people to read Coming to Palestine by Sheldon Richman, my colleague at the Institute, who has raised Jewish and Zionist. And he explains all of this stuff so well that even the Jews who were buying up a lot of property in Palestine in the days before the declaration of the state, they were buying it all from absentee landlords who'd been granted land by the king uh, or the sultan of the the Ottoman Empire. So the Sultan gives a piece of paper to some guy who's never even been to Palestine and says that he owns all of this land. Meanwhile, you have people who've actually been working that land for generations and it literally belongs to them and their father and their grandfather and their great grandfather. It's their land. And then the Israelis come in with a bunch of money from England and start buying up these pieces of paper from absentee landlords sitting in Beirut. Now, you know, people are going to argue land deeds and titles and this and that, but there is a lot of absolute fiat of government edict overriding the plain and simple natural rights of the people of Palestine. And quite frankly, for people who do believe in the Bible and people who do believe that, no, it says in there that this land is promised to the sons of Abraham, not these other people. I got news for you. The Palestinians are the sons of Abraham. The ancient Hebrews never left. The Roman exile is a myth. And obviously some Jews left and went to Europe and spread Judaism. They also spread it to Morocco and Ethiopia and Yemen and a lot of other places. But they were not forced out by the tens and hundreds of thousands and what have you um, by the Romans, like in the mythology. And so what that means is not that, I mean, we are talking centuries ago, so there is a statute of limitations on people's property, right? When we're talking literally Germans and Lithuanians and Russians from thousands of miles away, claiming from thousands of years away that they have this right to come in there. But on top of that, the actual ancient Hebrews never left. So the Palestinians who are there now are their descendants. All that happened is they converted to Islam when Islam came so that they wouldn't have to pay their taxes. It was either you stay Jews and pay taxes or you convert to Islam and you don't have to. And the whole world's history of religion is a history of people changing religion so they don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> that happens a lot. And so that was what happened. When the, when the Muslims and the Arabs came to uh, you know, ancient Judea, whatever you want to call it, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean there. They didn't kill everyone. They didn't kill everyone. And they didn't replace everyone who was mysteriously gone because the Romans had put them in boxcars and shipped them off. Never happened. So that means then if you do believe in that magical biblical property right, it applies to the people of Palestine there just as much, at least as much as all these Europeans. And for that matter, other Jews from around the Middle East who came to Israel after the creation of the state. I just wanted to add to that. I guess, I guess my point was just that, I mean, I know people are are not prone to saying this right now because they just see all this chaos. But I, I do think Jewish people and Arabs can live together. I do, too. <laughs> you know? I do, too. Look, 
you know, people talk about, it's just, look, the Israeli government used to be a bunch of terrorist groups and everybody considers them a legitimate government now. We had, um, you know, the IRA and Sinn Féin committed war crimes uh, in um, the wars in Northern Ireland. That's, with, with the Israeli groups, you're talking about like the Irgun and stuff like that, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they're founding groups, Lehi and, and Haganah and all that. We've had, look, the entire world is lousy with absolutely horrific, violent, ethnic conflicts, religious conflicts. And then there's ceasefire. I look at Beirut all throughout the 1980s and the civil war hadn't been on since, well, like early, early 90s. The civil war ended there. And people say, oh, we couldn't have a two state solution because then Hamas would just build up an army and attack. Well, if they had a two-state solution, a real two-state solution where they had real sovereignty over Gaza and the West Bank, I think, first of all, you know, the entire dynamic of the, their responsibility there would change and the entire dynamic of the amount of controversy um, over even the fact of the loss of the other uh, 78% of the land of Palestine was still, that's a pretty good consolation prize compared to not getting one at all. Right. And then if you talk about a one state solution, well, at that point, obviously there's a process to get there, but whether it's some kind of binational state or something like that, then no, Hezbollah would be disarmed. They would not, because look right now, their only reason they're armed like this is because they're under control from the outside, right? But if this was Gaza was just another county in Israel, another part of Israel, then Hezbollah, uh, Hamas wouldn't be allowed to have their own separate independent armed force like that, other than maybe like we have in what you see right now in uh, the West Bank, where you have like these internal security forces who are essentially under the control of Israel, not under the control of the Palestinians, right? So that's all doable. And, you know, uh, like whatever, Quebec and Canada is not a perfect analogy. Switzerland, obviously, is the West. But Switzerland is divided between the Germans, the French and the Italians. I mean, with lines on the ground divided because they don't trust each other to rule each other. But they still get along when they have their separations of powers. They find a way. And... um you know, it's not a panacea. There is no panacea to any of this. But, you know, Thomas Jefferson said about slavery in the early 19th century, he said, what are we to do? We have the wolf by the ears and we can neither safely hold him nor let him go. Right. And which was true. Right. When they freed the slaves, it was chaos. A lot of slaves were killed. A lot of slaves died of starvation. A lot of goddamn it was horrible, but it had to be done. The change had to be made. Chattel slavery had to be outlawed. Those people had to be set free. And after all, they weren't wolves at all, were they? They were human beings. You can't hold them. You can't. You got no right. You're going to have to figure it out. I want to thank you again, Scott Horton, for coming on Parallax Views. Real quick, just plug the Scott Horton Show and the Libertarian Institute. Sure. Uh, the Scott Horton show, I got almost 6,000 interviews going back to 2003. In fact, I got one from 1999 and uh, the rest, uh, almost 6,000 now going back to 2003 and he's heard them all. And, um, and uh, I'm at the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. I got a great group of guys there, man. We're publishing four books right now. Just came out today. The fake China threat by Joseph Solis Mullen. We've got, 
Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism by Keith Knight. And then very soon coming up, uh, right on their heels, we have Last Rites, The Death of American Liberty by James Bovard and Diary of a Psychosis, all about the COVID regime by Tom Woods, which are both going to be just absolutely huge and fantastic. And that's all at the Libertarian Institute. And of course, the most important project on the internet is antiwar.com. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you, I keep saying enjoyed. I don't know how anyone can enjoy uh, what's currently happening. Um, my phone just went off. Uh, I'm not editing this part. I hope you found informative, enlightening, educational uh, the conversation you just heard with Scott Horton. Like I said, we don't agree on everything politically, uh, and you know we probably don't even agree on every little detail brought up in this conversation. But th this is a dire moment, and we need to hear a variety of different voices. Um, I, I don't know what else to add. Uh, as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, uh, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Uh, you are the ones making this show possible if you support me on Patreon. Remember that. And uh, with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike, to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.